This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Mista. And the author is John J. Kaminsky, and John joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, John. Hi. Well, this Thanks is, for having me on today. Well, we appreciate you being here because you're going to take us into the world of high school, classroom, challenging the challenges of teaching students in the inner city. What's driven you and some of the, I guess, the the erosion of your optimism about teaching. So give us a little bit more, kind of set the stage for us of what this book is all about. I wrote Mista as almost a, as a diary about now around eight years ago, and it, and I wrote it simply because each and every day I started going into work and just finding myself appalled by all of the ridiculous situations I was in, and I thought that actually by writing them down and writing them almost in like a, an email story, I could send it to my friends at the time, friends, and sort of entertain them because I think that they, none of them could even relate to the kinds of situations that I was in on a daily basis. And then once I wrote a story, I would find myself writing another one and another one, and this went on the entire school year until I found myself with an entire book that pretty much went through my year of teaching English um, in this school. Now, you've always tried to look for the positive. You try to put a little twist of humor on things. In fact, you were voted the most popular teacher last year, so you have that unique quality. How, you know, when you're in this situation, when you're in this environment of the inner city where students may lack any kind of drive to do well, uh, I'm sure you have some students that are trying, but what was it like? How did you feel going to work? Um, it was it was very depressing. You know, I went to I went to a school where a lot of the te- a lot of the students came from. You know, they had a lot of a lot of family problems and you know, uh, poverty, no jobs. Uh, you know, around gangs and, and criminal elements. And then I expected them to, to in my one hour a day to you know expect them to read a book or write an essay. And it just was a very very challenging position. And um, you know just beat you down every single day because, you know, oftentimes the students, if they did any work, uh, you know, once they were out of your hands, you know, they were gone for another 23 hours and, you know, they could have been off doing anything. How many students? And there was never a consistent sort of way for them to learn because there was also an absentee problem. And, uh, you know, I went in every day to try to do my job of teaching English and bettering these students. And they were simply, you know, not only not putting in the effort, but, you know, their lives were so challenging that, that school was not going to be their top priority. And you love to teach. Um, I do. Um, I won't tell my students that, though, because I put out an act that I'm trying to be tough, but I do enjoy it. Um, and I do nowadays feel that I am making a difference in helping to guide, you know, students into their college lives. But, you know, that wasn't the situation when I first started teaching. I, I was put in in a situation where I felt that, I could not succeed, and that was why I eventually had to, you know, leave the inner cities and move on to to move on to schools that that the environment was better and more conducive to learning and accomplishing things. Now, your book starts out you being one of what's called the Twilight Zone teachers. Uh, tell us about the Twilight Zone. Well, um, in the inner cities, uh, in the in the the city that I was teaching in. What happens is is that they wanted to create an alternative program for the evenings for students that say were pregnant and couldn't finish high school or kids that had absentee problems, uh, also kids that sort of with disciplinary problems. So they created this again this after school program to kind of help them with their final credits so they can get a high school diploma. So you would have smaller classes and it would begin at night, but on any night any of those students could just be so poorly behaved that it'll make your job. Um, nearly impossible. And how were you, you know, looked upon by the regular day school teachers? Um, well, they thought that our job was sacred, and they didn't really treat us with much respect. So 
right there on like the first day I heard that uh, the, the other the, the day school teachers, as they were dubbed, didn't really like us. So, you know, you already go in knowing that other faculty members don't like you for no reason other than some invention that they have in their heads. Um, you know, so it's already strike one against you. And, uh, you know, to overcome that is just, you know, another obstacle in your job. So how many students total were you teaching? Um, I had about four classes a day, and uh, I should have had about 12 students um, per class. But, you know, that was larger simply because we didn't have a science teacher, and they could be, and so I would have larger classes. And um, but and that these are kind of some of the little issues that I grapple with in the, in the book. So here's a, uh, how old were you when you first started uh, in this uh, situation? Um, I think I was around, uh, I'm trying to do the math here, I think it was around 28. So you were young, 29. and you uh, had been a teacher for how long? Um, it was about my third year. Is that fairly normal that uh, new teachers are, are put into these kinds of situations, or is it just the luck of the draw where you end up getting a job? Well, uh, I got this job because this was the first job I applied to, and they offered me a job, and it was the beginning of the summer, so I decided to take it. Um, I, I knew that I would, and I was happy to have the job at the time, not really foreseeing all of the issues that I was going to have to deal with. Right, and of course your book, Mista, is uh, kind of a play on words. Uh, just tell us a little bit about that. Well, the one thing that I noticed is that um, in a in a student body that's predominantly black students, you know, white teachers are not, are, kind of, are called mista. Anybody sort of that was white that had any authority, students called mista, and that would, they would use that for, you know, uh, the, the administration or even police officers, and I just felt that I wanted to be a person, so let it be Mr. Kaminsky. So that was always something that I emphasized. I didn't just want to be, you know, just some anonymous uh, person in their lives. I wanted to be, you know, the English teacher, and I and I wanted to be remembered by my name. Now, were there are there students that are in your book that uh, gave you hope? That gave you hope for them? Um, it, it was not a very optimistic experience. I I always I still wonder what they all ended up doing, and I guess the real gauge would be to, to track them down and find out what happened to them and. Uh, you know, I just know how tough the world is for, for people that are educated and people that are trying their most efforts. So just I can't imagine how tough it is, you know, when you have all these strikes against you and you're in an environment that is simply not conducive to success where it's so much easier to sort of be involved in crime or, uh, you know, or, or not doing the kind of work that's needed to succeed. So, it's a, you know, in the end, I, I think it was just a very sad situation. Did you have some favorites that you remember? Well, you, you know, you know, a lot of the students were always good at, you know, goofing around and having, you know, a, a, you develop camaraderie with students and you try to get them to, to now, through this camaraderie, get them to, to do their work and just try to hold them accountable with that. So, you know, here and there, there's a lot of funny moments with the students, but, you know, in the end, it's not just a big joke. Like, you have to be teaching them skills that they're going to need in the real world. So, so you know, some of them are more than happy to kind of make a joke and goof around, but then, you know, when the day came that they had to do this or that, they were not always so happy with it. Well, you paint a picture that is pretty bleak. Well, I painted the I mean, the picture was just me describing it. It was, uh, I didn't, you know... There was no drama. There was no, uh, you know, there was no exaggeration. Like this is what the situation was, and uh, that's why when I went to graduate school, I would always think about what kind of, st uh, and I was, you know, in on the, the writing track, and I would think about what kind of story do I want to write now. And then I found myself, I was in the story. I was living the story already. So that's why I really wanted to get it down. So as you look at the education system and you look at the inner city, are there answers? Um, well, I think it's a very complicated situation, but, uh, you know, and, and if we just watch the news today, you know, there's many, many issues and there's not one solution, but I would say that in order to have successful schools, you need a lot of people that care and are willing to work hard to make that school succeed. 
And if you, if the school year in year out is failing, um, you know things need to be done because you're you're failing uh, people in their education, which is uh, you know it, it's a very sad state of affairs. Well, exactly because that only ends up in a bad way. I mean, if people aren't exactly. getting, I mean, yeah, there's no way out. Need. There's no way out for these young people if if they never take this seriously. Yeah, and uh, and for some of them, you know, it, it was easier for them to, you know, to take take the path of dealing drugs than it was to working hard. And many of them, you know, after I, I would speak with them, and they would be, you know, they would be fine with the idea of simply going to jail if they got caught for dealing drugs. I mean, these were things that you know, my uh, white suburban upbringing, you know, I, I hadn't even, I couldn't even think of this. I couldn't even fathom these ideas. Now, your book is filled with. Uh Reality that contains uh, real language. Yes. Um, yeah, there's a lot of profanity in it. If, um, if, if people want to hear what, what the job is like, this is you know, the, the kind of dialogue that you will hear. It's not G-rated. So you, you worked there for how long? Um, I worked there for two years, but this, uh, but this track's just the first of those two years. And in those and, two... Uh, part of the story why I stay the second year, but... I guess you have to find out. Right. And in those two years, it just kind of wore you down. Yeah, it's an exhausting position, especially one where you don't feel that your efforts are going anywhere. And, uh, and, and I knew that in a life, as in this profession, I needed to find something that had meaning. And I didn't feel that, that, I, that I was going to get that. You often hear uh, people who talk about, who are critical of the uh, education system, they say, well, show us performance, you know, show us the results. Well, in your case, did you have any positive results? Well, I, uh, no, I always found that what they were doing, they would always be lowering the standards for students. Um, too many students were accepting of just passing, getting the minimum. So it, they weren't striving forward. But, you know, this is a team effort with administrators and other teachers. And unless everyone's on the same page, uh, the students aren't going to be able to be successful. And, you know, everyone wasn't on the same page. You know, everybody has different priorities, and the student um, is not always the priority. So the administration, cool. the administration went through the motions? Yeah, and it could have done more. But, again, I, I also know that I try not to sort of point fingers at some of the people because that's a really hard job and uh, it's a grind. But, you know, I do feel bad for some of the people put in these tough positions, but at the same time, their failures lead to students that are going out into the world unprepared, you know, lacking skills to succeed. Were there uh, examples, evidence of family members, uh, grandparents, aunts, uncles getting involved with these kids in school? Uh, did you have any kind of that kind of participation? Sure. Uh, sometimes parents would come in. Um, we had some parents that, you know, there was a conflict because their students were black, and I'm um, sorry, their children were black, and I was white, and um, they kind of. You know, they weren't happy about that. They felt, some of them even felt that I was racist because I was trying to hold their children accountable for the things that they said and did. Then you would have other parents that, you know, they were just totally single moms, totally overworked, trying to deal with a, a teenager that is stuck in this environment. I mean, you definitely feel for parents like that, especially the ones that are trying. It's very hard. A lot of these parents, I'm sorry, a lot of these students have single moms, and um, it, it, it's difficult for them to raise a family in that kind of environment. So really no moral to the story. The, your book is doesn't have some theme of some solution or some moral theme. Well, it's never, it's never that easy. I just wanted to kind of give the perspective from a, a teacher's perspective on what that job is like. And it doesn't end with everyone getting a five on a calculus exam or everyone, uh, you know, in the National Honor Society in the end. Because if it was like that, we wouldn't have these problems in our education system today. There's failure in, I would say, every inner city in the United States. And we have to figure out how we're going to fix these situations. And, um, you know, if we keep talking about it for another year, it's another year of failure. So it's always good to, for me to read some of the success stories because it can be done. But, uh, it, you know, we just need to we hear more positive stories.
The title of the book, Mista, and the author is John J. Kaminsky. John, tell us how to get your book. Um, it's available online at Amazon.com, AuthorHouse.com, and BarnesandNoble.com. Well, thank you, John. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you very much. John Kaminsky, author of his book, Mista. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time. With author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Was sad because right. he had a death kill mommy and dad. Right. But that ain't the case. Nope. It wasn't his fate. No, nope. the wants never struggled to communicate. Ah. Y'all wave your hands. Look who's on. Yeah. It's the code of man Keith that he's number one. It's that Keith Wine Show on Toginet.com, Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central. Every week, that Keith Wine Show will have guests that share their experiences, expertise, opinions, and personal lives with us to hopefully help us better understand others. The topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community. For more on Keith Wine, and the show, go to his website, KeithWanWann.com. Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Don't miss that Keith Wan Show. Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Choosing Simplicity. And the author, Stephen Ayer. And Stephen joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Stephen. Hello, how are you? Well, good to have you with us. Everyone is going to learn a lot today and learn about themselves and learn about what's going on in the world help us make better decisions. I want to read a couple of things you've written about your book. I like this statement, choose simplicity to prepare your mind to make the right decisions. I guess we could just talk the rest of the time just about that. <laughs> so it certainly yeah, we have probably to, could. Yeah, you, you really do. In order to make right decisions, you really do have to prepare your mind. You got to really know what's going on. So you say the purpose of this book is to try to help anyone maintain what I call, quote, living on top of the mountain in a pure, contented, happy state of mind. Well, most people would say that's impossible, but you're going to help us understand how we can live at the top of the mountain. And even though those moments may be fleeting, but you found a way to, I guess, achieve health, which is living on top of the mountain in three categories. You call it physical, spiritual, and mental health. Before we get into some of the details, Stephen, tell us a little bit about your background and and why you wrote the book. Sure. I'm a financial consultant in my day job, uh, so I give advice for a living. Typically, it's not this type of of advice. Uh, It's obviously financial in nature, but everything works together. So... So this is this writing this book um, more on on life and choices it was really a natural progression for me. Uh, I'm I'm married with uh, with four children and and I try to uh, I try to practice what I preach. I try to to make the right choices to bring me to uh, to the top of the mountain. And and I, I would agree that it is impossible 
to, to stay at the top of the mountain. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. You make this statement, Stephen, we have control over our own decisions, and every choice that we make is important, having a direct bearing upon our future. Well, that, of course, is obvious on the surface, but it's something that it's a great challenge every day to remember. Part of the, the reason that the book is in the format that it is is because it helps us to, to it helps remind us through its format and through its simplicity it's a daily reminder of, of what we need to keep in front of us and, and what we need to, to do, really, to, to make better choices. We are often, you know, captive to our, to our own mind um, and limit ourselves and what, what we can do just by our perception. But the reality is that, you know, let, let's look at an example. People... Oftentimes, people will, will, will want to work out, right? They'll want to get in better shape. They'll want to, be, they'll want to look better. They'll want to feel better. But they don't take the necessary steps to get them there. Uh, when in reality, you know, how much time are they wasting doing other things when they could be at the gym? Uh, it's, it's, it's a choice. Uh, you choose to watch TV or you choose to watch American Idol, or, or play video games opposed to going to the gym. You choose to eat that French fry opposed to eating a piece of broccoli. You know, it, it's really breaking down that choice to its most basic form with your priorities in mind. And that's the title of the book, Choosing Simplicity, and also would like to point out that we're not talking about some compendium here, uh, some uh, of huge... Uh, factory of knowledge type book. You've tried to boil this down to the simple things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. There are over 80 topics in the book which cover what I believe to be uh, which, you know, the majority of our choices. Um, and it takes, the format is such that it takes a look at each one of these principles or subjects, and, and it does boil them down to their most simple form so that we can, we can look at, the, at one page, one topic, for three to five minutes a day and ground ourselves into what we want to accomplish. And, and why did we want to accomplish that before? Okay, now we've reminded ourselves of that, and it, and it re-centers us to be able to make the right choice for, for, for that day and, and every day going forward. And I think that's the real difference of, of my book relative to other maybe self-help books or philosophical books because there, are, there is such a vast number of, of, of items in the book, but it is all broken down to its most simple uh, perspective. So you don't have to spend three to, to five hours reading, reading a book on each one of these topics. You can simply spend three to five minutes r- reading one page out of my book and, and, and walk away with, with some actionable idea. And you call that the daily reminder, and it's, again, it fits your title, Choosing Simplicity, because it's these simple things that we do every day, these consistent things, as you point out, keeping priorities in the forefront of our minds. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, you know, I think that we're, we're all meant to, to excel, not only at work, not only in our fa- in our, at home, not only in our relationships, not only... In, you know, going to the gym or working out, we're, we're meant to excel in all areas of our lives. There is a way to, I believe, do that, and, and, and that's practice. And remind yourself of what's important to you consistently and constantly. Uh, you know, if, it, if, if the, the, one of the teams that went to the Super Bowl didn't practice for the two weeks prior to the bowl, they wouldn't win. Okay, and if if we 
don't practice the importance of, of making good decisions every single day, small, whether it's small decisions or, or big decisions, we're not going to make the right decision when the time comes. So that, that's really the essence of, of the book. And I really I, I like that because I remember hearing a coach, a sports coach, say it's really important to have the will to win, but it's even more important to have the will to prepare. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. I mean, that says uh, it all. You can't, you can't win unless you have that will to prepare. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and like Warren Buffett once said, and he, 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 this, was, this was meant for investing, uh, but he said investing is simple, not easy. And I look at that and I correlate that to, to this book. Choosing simplicity is simple, not easy. Making good choices is simple, not easy. And the reality is that although these concepts are very simple, most of them are, are not new uh, to, to anyone, um, but the reality is that, the, that even though they're simple, it's hard. It's difficult. It's difficult to, to make consistent good decisions um, over time, because because we we again we we limit ourselves and what we're able in what we're able to accomplish. Um, so the same thing could be said to, to 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 these, but if to these concepts, but if you practice these, if you if you prepare, and over time they will become part of who you are. And, and and part of just a way of life, which will lead to better decisions over time in all areas of, of our lives, excelling in all things. There's a couple of controversial aspects of your book. We're going to cover uh, t- these two briefly because we don't have uh, a lot of time to go into details. But you say that Christians are mostly confused about their roles in making good decisions. Yeah, I, I do believe that that's true. Christians believe that, and I'm a Christian, believe that that they should rely on God for everything, and and that minimizes their role in their decision making process. But the reality is that that's not true. Um, we do need to to rely on God for everything. However, God gave us the ultimate decision. Right, we have the power to choose whether we are going to believe in God, believe in Jesus Christ, or not. So our our choice determines our the rest of eternity for us. So why, if if God would trust us with making that decision, why are we to minimize? The rest of the choices that we meet, need to make down here uh, on, uh, on this earth. I mean, uh, people seem to, be, to believe that um, that our role is is limited, and it's and it's simply not. Uh, it, it's actually it's actually very uh, a very large role, and our choices do determine not only our spiritual health our physical health, and our mental health, which is obviously what the book is focused on. Let's talk about another controversy. You talk about the likelihood of the U.S. dollar losing its reserve currency status. Now, help us understand what that means and why you see that coming. This has become a little bit less controversial in the last couple of weeks or months as, as more and more people uh, who are much more prominent than I have come out with this concern. Um, but the reality is that uh, the probability of it, because more and more, more people are, are seeing this, the probability that, that this is going to occur is rising with each passing day. And essentially what it means is uh, the U.S. dollar has been the world's reserve currency for, for 60 years, uh, it offers us tremendous benefits to our economy. Um, 
whether it's lower interest rates or, you know, there's a number of things. Um, but that, that status is under, is under attack. And, and certainly just from viewing it in the most simplistic fashion, China will overtake the United States in GDP within 10 years. Uh, do you think that they will want to continue to uh, to be using the the U.S. dollar in in international transactions? Uh, do you think that they would want someone who is below their their GDP output uh, to have that uh, advantage? Um, and the answer is obviously not. And they've already expressed that they want a change in the reserve status reserve currency status going forward, as well as a number of other countries. But uh, it means a lot of things. Uh, it means uh, the markets as a whole, um, all markets will be affected by it uh, dramatically. And like John F. Kennedy once said, uh, that's, that's in the book, um, the time to repair the roof is when the sun is shining. And you know what? The sun is shining right now. And mm-hmm. we need to start preparing for this event. Yeah, the key word, prepare. Again, another simplistic idea, concept, prepare. But, of course, like you say, you have to prepare the mind to know how to prepare and what to do. And so your book addresses that we need to focus on our spiritual, physical, and mental needs that we have every day. Thank you, Stephen. The book title, Choosing Simplicity, the author is Stephen Ayer. Stephen, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can go to my website, which is choosingsimplicity.us, or it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and any of the other online retailers uh, at this moment. Well, thank you for being with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. People think I've made it. I'm popular. I seem happy all the time. I have great clothes and I'm involved in everything. But I have questions, doubts, and fears, just like every other teenager. That's why I'm glad for Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. Join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. The choices we have to make that can alter the course of our lives. Life is too much pressure if we try to go it alone. I tune in to Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell every week to get reminded that I'm not alone. Nicole O'Dell is an expert on what happens in the lives of teenagers. Join her as she deals with topics like peer pressure, purity, drugs, alcohol, and many other things that might come up along the way. She writes books and speaks to people all over the place, but she says her favorite moments are when she can pull up a chair and chat with teens about what's important to us. For more information on Nicole and her books, go to NicoleO'Dell.com. Then join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com. Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Jet Black and the Ebony Nights. And the author is Easy Ezerim. And we welcome him to the show right now. We call him Emmanuel and affectionately revere him as E Doggy. Hello, E Doggy. <laughs> How you doing, Steve? Good morning. Good morning to you. And this is a happily ever after story. Boy, do we need those. Yes. Well, tell us a little bit, give us kind of an overview of this ultimate fairy tale and why you did it. Oh, wow. This is is, uh, something that's been brewing inside me for for a long time, but I just didn't know how how to bring it out, and it finally came out. The thing is, 
growing up, I wasn't privy to too many happily ever after stories in in <clears throat> in the whole black community or minority community. It seemed all of the fairy tale world just didn't have minority representatives in, in them, and that was one of the things that I that I so needed. And uh, and just a little summary, you know, you you go to the store and there's the Cinderella, there's uh, Rapunzel's, and there's all kinds of baby dolls, and those all have characters. And you can't just force people into buying a doll and and try to make it black just to have a representative. The kids don't buy those toys because of their colors. They buy them because they have names. They're buying Barbie. They're buying Kendall. So to bring something like that in, it has to have a personality. And there, Jet Black, that's the name of the girl. And I, interestingly, I came up with the name of the book, the title of the book, before I had the story. <laughs> but uh, it was something that was, uh, that was just, I felt it was needed in, 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 in my community to share, have a, a happily ever after story. I read too many sad stories growing up. There were good books, great books, written by great authors that are world-renowned, uh, Chinua Achebe and others from the, the Nigerian or African community. But those books that, that I read growing up, all of them you can pretty much summarize in one, in one title. Things Fall Apart. I don't know how many of your audience have heard of that book before, but it's Things Fall Apart. Things get progressively worse for the main characters in the books. And, and I thought it was supposed to be heroes. I want people to overcome their problems and tell me about how they overcame it so I can be uplifted. Rather, we have the other way around, people that just get overcome by their problems. And problems are part of life. So we needed stories of people that overcame whatever it is, whatever challenge it was. And I had to come up with one because I didn't see one coming. So I thought I'd contribute a little bit that way. And maybe people that are better than me in the future can do a better job. But yeah, I just got them started. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jet Black is the princess and her dad is King Caddy. <laughs> And yeah. what is the land called? What's this land called? They are they are they are from a fairy tale land called Wazobia. Now, I hope I hope that's easy enough and phonetic enough for people to pronounce. I didn't want it to be. I want it, it was it's African based, but I wanted to use simple African pronunciations that people can follow, so it wouldn't be too intimidating. It's called Wazobia. Interestingly, such a fictitious place does exist in terms of a place called Nigeria. Now, in Nigeria, we have, we have some major uh, tribes, but we have like maybe three major, major tribes in Nigeria. That's the Igbo, Hausa, and Yoruba. And in those, two, in those three languages, they, they have the word kum, which is which in Igbo is Bia, in, in Aosa is Zo, and in Yoruba is Wa. So we took the three words that say come in those three languages and put them together, and it was Zo Bia. Come, come, come. <laughs> so you come and read the Jet Black at the Every Night story. <laughs> well, we you are invited. You are invited. Of so you are invited to come. Of course, in every fairy tale, there has to be the evil character. In this case, he's very different. He's a greedy serpent named Mongo. Tell us about him. Absolutely. Greedy serpent Mongo is, is can I say, representation of, of all of society's greed. You know, greed is, is really the culprit for all the evil that men do. And, and, <clears throat> and also the fact that the serpent also, even from the biblical point of view, serpent. So it was easier for me to find that, do the, uh, the, the evil one as the serpent. But serpent 
really for my for the representation of in this book is the is the evil in all of all of society that's a representation of that so some bad things eventually happen to Mongo, the greedy serpent, and he's going to have revenge. And, of course, we know in a story like this that has to do with the king's daughter. He's going to have revenge on the king by some bad things happening to the king's daughter, Jet Black. That's right. He, he, Mongo kind of accidentally runs into a friend who also has a reason to have grudges against the king and 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 his father before him so he teamed up with the vulcan witch and that vulcan witch came i got that from the volcano because something happened with volcano you have to find out in the book and it just made sense to give her the vulcan (laughs) (laughs) deriving from the volcano so it just rhymed and then as the story went from there. But they got to go to the book to find out what the Mongo and the Vulcan witch, what they teamed up to do. Yes, they How te- they planned to get their revenge. Right, the That's ultimate the revenge with the two of them. And, of course, revenge always has a twist in it. It always yeah. has some kind of uh, theme in it. There always yeah. has to be a rescue, right? Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we don't have a story. We don't have a story. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but this this is real different because, uh, without saying too much, though, you take this the greedy serpent Mongo and you put the ultimate twist on this fairy tale by turning in. He turns himself into a white man. He turns into a fair-skinned person. Oh, a fair-skinned person. A, a fair-skinned person <laughs> in terms of in terms of. He, he had he had to be different to now you're looking at a community of people who are who are sitting there and this girl who is looking for something that she really doesn't know what it is but it has it had to be some something totally different from what the people there in Wazobia what they were totally uh not used to something so different from what they're used to seeing so you got to see how that plot goes, because it had to be something totally different, out of the ordinary, to make this magic for things to go from there. It is awesome. It's just awesome. And, and that's what happened to her. I can't tell you the secret of what it was she was seeking, sure. but it had to come from a strange place. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the key messages that you have in your book, you, I quote you, you don't have to be born aristocrat to make a difference. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve, for pointing that out. That was one of the key things that I, I felt passionate about addressing. Because uh, in society, there's a tendency to, to abandon people one strike and you're out kind of thing but i believe in second chances and another and another and another and as long as you well, it doesn't have, it doesn't matter how many times you fall on your knees if you decide and you choose to get back up just one more time you deserve that chance to just get up and and try again and and that's really what my experience about america has been all about about second chances america it's, uh, it's the, the land of opportunity, and that's what it's all about. Somebody decides to try again and give it another shot, I think they should be giving that chance. And that's my experience of America, and that, I hope, came out in this book plainly and, and, and easy for people to pick up. Well, I think it's very clear because... You go to four unlikely volunteers to rescue the princess, and they are very unlikely volunteers. They're not. They're not the usual hero type, are they? <laughs> no, they're not. And, and they're, no, they're not. And I hope. I hope. I hope people see that, and and appreciate that. And not only that, I hope that some of the people who have felt like these unlikely heroes 
can now start to see that they themselves have those qualities inside them. That it doesn't always have to be about uh, about <clears throat> about uh, money or something else. It, it, it has to be personal. It has to be the thing about being a hero has to be personal inside. It cannot be about any kind of major reward. It has to be because there's something burning inside you to want to do good to humanity. It can't just be because you gotta get money or big rewards. It's got to come from the heart. Yeah, thank you very much. It's got to be from the heart. Well, tell us just real quick, just a little something about each one of these unlikely heroes. Well, we got four unlikely heroes (laughs) that are are so unlikely. Um, But every single one of them, I can say, came from some sudden kind of experience that I've had in my personal life. Um... I have I have uh, I have one who is a kayaker, and he's 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 an expert swimmer, and just lifeguard, and you know just a common guy, you know likes kids, and kids love him, and he can really identify with kids, and they love how he tells stories, and and his name is Kayode, he says Kayode, and then and then I have a, I have one character by the name of uh, Lamont. And uh, Lamont, Lamont kind of reminds me of the old Lamont from the Sanford and Son. <laughs> <laughs> Sanford and Son character <laughs> with his afro. But I had to give him some other kind of skill. And, and, and he's a locksmith. So he's kind of a, he's, he's a, he's a, just like I said, he reminds me of the Lamont from the Sanford and Son. Uh, it's uh, a uh, uh, sitcom from back in the days. I don't know how many of how many how many of these uh, listeners today I can identify with that character. But he's just a good-natured guy, and uh, but still comes from the common folks, everyday people. And then there's uh, there's uh, <clears throat> another character by by the name of Natty Dread. Now, Natty Dread represents everything about roots rock reggae for me. <laughs> <laughs> With his long dreadlocks, and he can fling it every which way. But, you know, those kind of characters, you, you just kind of dismiss them for not being good for anything in, in society. You just kind of lo- look at them, and you don't think they're, they're going to amount to anything. Yeah, they don't seem to fit in anywhere, right? Yeah, those, so those are the kind of people that I was looking for because there's something locked in in all of them that can that can be useful to society if they're given a chance. And then there's and Booker. Then, and then there's Booker. And then there's Booker. And I came up with Booker to highlight Bookum Dono. Remember <laughs> the old Hawaii Five O? Yeah. <laughs> Just Booker, and it tells you he's a thief. He's a common thief. You know, no good. And and the thing is, once you have a tarnished record, once you have a record, society tends to dismiss you. You can't get a job. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't, 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 can't. So Booker, as soon as you say it, it, it reminds you of jail terms. Book him. And he's got the corn roll. But even though this kid, as a, growing up as a pickpocket, he had already stopped doing all of that kind of stuff, but somehow society still haven't forgiven him for being a, a pickpocket. But even those skills that he used for picking people's pocket came to be used for a good deed for once in his life. And these four kids made a pact that they were going to stand for something honorable for once in their lives and that they would rather die for a good cause than to live for nothing. And they made up their minds that they were going to embark on this journey to rescue our princess that was in trouble. And, and I, I, am so, I am so excited to highlight these characters that are common everyday people who are doing great things. Well, what the heroes on just the big football players and right? Yeah. 
What is not common about this book are the illustrations. They just come alive. Oh, Dan Drewis did the illustrations. And I, I, you said it. You, you said it. I, there's nothing more for me to say because you see it. <laughs> yes, they are well done. He, he did a wonderful job with the characters. Wonderful job. Wonderful job. Well, and Emmanuel. I, 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 people need to pick up the book. The title of the book is Jet Black and the Ebony Knights. Emmanuel, tell us how to get your book. You can get it at every bookstore, Barnes & Nobles, uh, AuthorHouse.com. You can go through my website, www.edoggydog.com. E-D-O-G-G-Y-D-O-G.com. E-Doggydog. <laughs> But you can order it at any bookstore nationwide. If they don't have it, they, you can or you can tell, have them order it for you, and you get it probably the next day or in two days. But it's at every location. It's online. You can Google it. You can go to Amazon.com, AuthorHouse.com, Barnes and Nobles, any one of those places you want to, you like, you choose to use. It's there. Well, we affectionately call him E Doggy. He's Easy, Easy Rim. Easy Rim. We appreciate you being with us, Emmanuel. Thank you so much for sharing with us Jet Black and the Ebony Knights. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you.